What is up, you guys? And welcome to the Beneath the Armor podcast, where we discuss what goes on beneath the metaphorical armor we put on every single day to mask as typical functional humans when really we are all just big weirdos deep down inside. We talk about mental health, how we really feel. We get into the nitty gritty feelings of what it means to be a human being. So thank you so much for being here on today's episode. I'm excited to have you. Hello everyone and welcome to the Beneath the Armor podcast. It has been a hot minute since we've put out an episode, um, but honestly, mental health is tough. What is the pandemic and what are we all doing here? I needed a break. So now we're back (laughs) and we are starting back our newest episode with a friend of mine. I'm really, really excited to have on this show. Um, He's a friend of mine, but we've never actually had an intimate one-on-one conversation with each other. I feel like we just have one of those soul connections. So you guys are listening to actually our first organic one-on-one friendship conversation conversation, which I'm, I'm just so hyped about. He is a father, he's a boyfriend, and he is also just super passionate about health and wellness and changing lives through those things amongst a lot of other nuanced things that we will talk about more in this conversation. So welcome, Isaac. I'm so excited to have you here. How are you? Thank you, Alex. Uh, first off, I'm just honored to be on this podcast and talking to you. And, uh, you know, like you said, we, we, we don't really like we know each other, but we haven't had the the intimate, you know, friendship building that would be stereotypical of, of people cultivating a, a social connection. But uh, we were, we've been able to kind of meet through uh, a business colleague of ours who, who, who runs a really, really awesome coaching community. And so meeting you as a, as a leader in that group and seeing the way you, you communicate things and, and the way you kind of understand the uh, nuances of human humanality. Uh, it, it just kind of sparked interest and curiosity. And so, yeah, we, we just started talking back and forth via uh, WhatsApp, you know, and, and building that friendship. And so I'm just excited to be here and to actually have this conversation with you. And for the listeners, I am from the Midwest, born and raised in, in Missouri, uh, joined the Marine Corps uh, when I was 20 years old. Uh, served some time there, got out. Uh, and, you know, that's kind of formed who I am growing up Midwestern preacher's kid. Uh, and then being in the military and uh, finding myself in, in positions of, of responsibility in the military and, and needing to conduct myself accordingly, and then getting out and finding myself in a position to lead people in a way that's passionate and, and compassionate and empathetic. Uh, so th- there's going to be times in this conversation where uh, I might need to pause and think through what I say or correct things that I say and realize it's by no means me, me, me meaning to be offensive. It's, it's the way I was raised and the way I've been uh, brought up as a product of, of the military and product of being that Midwestern preacher's kid. So there's going to be times where I correct things that I say. Uh, so just bear with me and, and be patient in that. And I'm just excited. Oh my God, I adore you so much as a human. The fact that you said all of that, I just need to like address my own feelings about what you just said, because in my experience, so few people, A, own that upfront and say, hey, I kind of want to lay the scene for you of who I am as a human, but also I will need to take pauses. This is something that I do. It is how I was raised, but also allows me to correct myself or rethink things. And rethinking is so important I feel like so many people t- like talk before they really think things through. And maybe that's a judgment statement on my end, but it is just my experience. And so you saying that upfront, I really, really appreciate. And I will also try to be more mindful of myself because I have 87,000 opinions. And sometimes I say them without thinking. So I will and, also be more mindful. <laughs> so if you're open to it, I also would like to set the scene for everyone um, in terms of where we're probably going to end up with this conversation. We're going to start with some other guiding questions, but something about you and I that really, I think, drew us together was we come from such diverse, different backgrounds. We have such different experiences. And if you were to look at us on um, paper or a dating app, let's say, if you were to look at our dating app profiles, if those existed, they'd probably be very, very different. Uh, Yet we 
really hear each other. We really see each other. We deeply respect each other as friends and as humans. And so where we will likely go in this conversation is what it means to be so different in terms of personal values and identities and how we overcome those kind of polarizing opinions to come together to create a better world for everyone to live in. So I'm just, oh my God, I'm so hyped. So before we get into it in that length of detail, could you tell me a little bit more about yourself growing up, what childhood looked like for you and what that was like? Yeah, so childhood was interesting. Uh, I can't say it was bad. Uh, I, I had loving parents who worked really hard uh, to make sure that we were provided for and that no matter what they faced as a couple, we never saw that. Uh, we never saw the the hardships of marriage. And my parents have, are still married. They've been married for 37 years, I think now. And, and it's, you know, they're, they're a great example of, of what parents should be and what a husband and wife should be. So for me, it was, it was really cool to have that. But uh, with that, um, we, we came from a very poverty stricken area, uh, being kind of from a farm town. I, I went to a school who it was five whole towns put into one school, preschool through 12th grade. Uh, my graduating class was 70. And so it's, it's like, I, we, we grew up with not a lot. So my parents worked hard, uh, but it was still kind of hoping, you know, we can, have dinner tomorrow, kind of, you know, looking forward to the free lunches at school kind of thing. So it was like a very interesting kind of upbringing and, and knowing the value of hard work and knowing the value of, of just working through troubles and not giving up because there really is no option. And then from there, uh, honestly, like growing up, experiencing a lot of different big life events. Uh, one of my one of my brothers, I, I grew up in a foster, my parents were foster parents. So we had a lot of foster brothers in and out. And uh, one of my closest brothers uh, on, we actually shared a birthday and on, on my birthday, I woke up and he wasn't there. Uh, turns out he, he had OD'd at a, at a party celebrating his birthday. And so like from that at a young age, for me, I think I was 13, um, understanding the value of life and, and how kind of just getting a really good understanding of Con consciousness and, and self, but in a way still that was rooted in, in faith at the time. And so, yeah, just growing up through that and then going into college and kind of going through the whole rebellious questioning uh, faith phase into the Marine Corps and honestly becoming agnostic and, and walking away from everything that kind of made me who I was and um, being exposed to a world that was completely new to a Midwestern preacher's kid uh, and traveling the world and seeing things, uh, seeing things that most people wouldn't see. Uh, and then, you know, coming back and, and trying to make a life after that. So it's been a very interesting uh, life experience, but it's, it's been amazing, honestly. And, and I would say every single uh, experience that most would say is tragic uh, in the time is tragic, but over time, uh, you, you tend to learn the lessons from it uh, and, and bring away very positive takeaways from bad life experiences. And honestly, I think that's why I am where I am uh, is because of those life experiences and, and what makes us who we are. Wow. Oh my God. You have such a beautiful story and much of that, of course, I did not know about you. So thank you so much for sharing. First of all, that's like a wild ride. Do you mind me asking how old you are? It's contextual. I'm curious. You're fine. I'm 27. Oh my God. So in 27 years, like that's so much, I'm 29 by the way. So that's so much like trauma and experience to have and ultimately what is such a short lifespan. And um, it sounds like you have so much gratitude for everything that like you experience and that gratitude is like a very prominent theme in your life. Am I correct in saying that? Can you tell me more about that? Absolutely. Um, so to make uh, some long story short, I've flatlined three times um, just from different experiences, whether in the military and, and one out. Uh, so I've, I've been close to that, you know, where, you know, one second you're here, one second you're not. And so um bringing that into my personal life, my business life and, and my spiritual life and everything. It's just understanding that like, I 
I'm not supposed to be here, but uh, you know, I, whether it's a cosmic force or the universe, or for me, you know, God still has me here for a reason. And so I need to be thankful for that. And I need to fulfill that reason, whatever that reason is. And uh, I'm starting to think that I'm actually lining up with that reason. And I, and, and I'm, I'm starting to live out that truth. But uh, for, for me, you know, I'm just, I'm super happy uh, to be on this journey. And by no means does that make me naive to uh, depression or anxiety or, you know, all the other complexities of, of trials and tribulations, but uh, to have an underlying joy uh, that I'm here for a reason. And that reason is to impact other people's life experiences, then I, I have no reason not to be grateful. Oh my God, you are such an amazing human. I'm like, I feel, I feel very deeply honored to like know you in this moment. I'm kind of sitting here experiencing awe and wonder and curiosity as I get to know you more. And I'm not gonna lie, I feel like I could go off on several different tangents with this because I just wanna get to know you more as a person now. I feel like this conversation could very easily just be Alex interviewing Isaac and being like, okay, say more about this. Um, so I'm going to take a moment, one of those moments we talked about, and just kind of breathe for a second, yep. because I am so struck by who you are. Wow. Um, <laughs> where do I want to go with this? So many people at 27 probably have not had those experiences. Like, if we're going to generalize, I don't want to, because everyone's story is so unique and so different, and I want to steer clear of comparison. But what makes you so special, and again, coming back to like our bond here, is we have very, very different stories. Yet here we are both in our 20s, and we're able to see each other as another human and human first, and like put things that are typically these big dividing opinions off the table completely to go, hey, tell me more about who you are as a person. I feel like you're so interesting. I want to learn from you and to like open you up into my world a little bit more as well, because I know you know some things about me, but again, not, not a lot. I've, I've never flatlined. I've like, I have not experienced that. I've never been homeless. I have not been in the military. I have not been like in the Marine Corps or anything like that. What I experienced growing up was a similar parenting dynamic, but my, my parents are my biological parents. I was not in a foster family. Um, my mom is a nurse. My dad is now a school principal, but was a, a math teacher and just an academic all around. But I was raised in a very, they were not impoverished, but they were poor. Like it, we knew the value of a dollar and it was like, you grind this out and you work hard for the next day. And hard work was a large part of my upbringing. Uh, but I was raised to be the family therapist. My parents had me very young. And at a young age, I learned to appreciate and acknowledge other people's emotions and to put other people's needs before my own. And in tandem doing that, learned to ignore my own needs completely. And as a result, kind of lost control of myself, didn't know why I was so sad and so hurt and so lonely for such a long time, but had an eating disorder at a very young age. Um, fainted at school on an occasion and my mom said did you really faint or are you being dramatic like that was kind of how I was raised um and then now like really in the pandemic I found out that like I am non-binary I'm autistic I've known I've been queer since grade five but I am like just a rainbow colored technicolored neurodivergent human and here we are I am a Buddhist I am non-binary I am autistic I was born female but I am gender curious and, and you are Christian living in Missouri, Marine Corps, like again, on paper, different humans. And so I think what, why, what we probably see within each other is this shared experience and shared trauma and adversity and a respect for what it means to live the life that you lead and to be alive and be here and be grateful for what you do have because it has been hard, but there's so much joy in experience and with the life that we have ahead of us. And so, oh my God, I guess my question is kind of like to anyone listening to this, what would you like the person listening to this to know about their potential life moving forward? What is like a message you would give them that you just find important? 
Well, I think uh, in the the space that that this podcast is, uh, it's it's something that I think is really important. Whether you're Christian, Muslim, Buddhist, agnostic, atheist, it doesn't it doesn't matter. You know what spirituality you are. Uh, if you ask if you ask my parents, what's your, what's your vision of world peace look like? And they're going to say, everyone, you know, bows their knee to Jesus Christ and, and praises. And if you ask a devout Muslim, um, you know, what, what is world peace look like to you? And they'll say they'll all bow their knee and, and, and worship Allah. And, you know, if you ask a Buddhist, you know, what's world peace when, when everyone understands and realizes that they are their own, you know, form of, of, of life. And so the, the problem is, okay, what does an imperfect world look like? okay, well, we all disagree. It's like, why does that have to be imperfect? Like, yes, I believe that Jesus is, is you know, Christ is savior and, and, you know, all of that. But at the same time, I know that I might not ever convince the devout Muslim next to me that that's the truth. And am I going to let that divide make us enemies? Or am I going to say, okay, yeah, I don't agree with you, but that's okay. You're your own person. We can still have a conversation. We can still talk. We can still work together. And then we can still be friends. Uh, and, and it took a lot of time kind of internalizing it and deconstructing all the norms that were put in my head growing up. And nothing, my parents are amazing. I, I love my parents. This is nothing against the way I was raised or them. Uh, but I, I, I had a strong understanding of life just from traveling the world and seeing these other cultures and, and knowing like, to them, that's their absolute truth. And, and though I, I believe that there are absolute truths and then there, there are other truths that aren't absolute, uh, who am I to impose my truth on them, even if I believe mine is the absolute? If my being just a positive light in their life at the end makes them curious and they ask questions, then by all means, that's what discipleship should be. But until that point, you know, the only world peace will happen when we can all just be like, hey, you're different, but that's great. Like, let's talk. And that's why I got along with you so well is because we were so different, but whenever we're talking to each other, it didn't matter. Uh, you know, and, and the fact that when typically I would talk to an atheist uh, about my beliefs, it causes defensive mechanisms to take place. And for me, it's like, I can talk to an atheist and I used to get triggered, but now I realize it's just a difference in mechanisms of, of how we're conversing with each other. And the responses are emotional and connected to past you know, life experiences that are causing this, you know, barrage of, of words coming out. So I'm just going to not talk about this. And if, and if we are, I'm going to make sure that they understand, like, I'm not imposing my views, you know, I'm not, and I let that be known. And, and so meeting someone who's so different in their beliefs, but yet similar in the way we give those beliefs out as tangible, you know, understanding, then that's, that's something that I appreciate in, in someone else and, and a quality that I, I think is very uh, decent and, and good. So that's, that's one, one thing that I would want your listeners to know is that no matter what your life experience is, uh, someone else has one that's completely unique uh, and we're all unique. So if you if you're talking to someone and, and you feel like you're getting triggered uh, because their belief is different than yours, uh, just realize that you're more likely going to coerce them into believing what you believe by just accepting them for who they are, forgiving them for who they're not, and building that relationship. And down the road, you might realize that the conversations that cause triggers never even come up. You never even talk about them again. Uh, and, and that's perfectly okay. Uh, just be okay with, with being happy. It's, it's allowed. Oh, I love that. I think that's so powerful and so well said again. And so what came to mind for me immediately with that is again, this in, ingrained curiosity in you. That's like, I could come to the table and talk about this really hard thing. And if you're going to get defensive, I could keep pushing your buttons, but ultimately what is that going to resolve? What is that going to lead to? It's not going to benefit either of us. So how do we move forward having this relationship? And that's a question I'd love to ask you is 
like some people find themselves in precarious situations where maybe it's not a stranger on the street you find who has a different opinion. Like you and I could have crossed paths and decided we don't need a friendship. I don't know you, you live in a different country. Like we can move along and that's an easy thing to do. But for people who let's say were raised in a, a family where now they individualize themselves from their parents, their parents are let's say devout Christians and this is a common issue that's in society right now. You as the child of these parents decide that you are an atheist, you are queer, maybe you're trans, you're coming out to your parents. You really want a relationship with them. You really deeply want to stay within your family, but they don't accept you for you. How do you have these hard conversations when you come from two different perspectives and they're not received with this kind of loving curiosity? Is there a way to start that ball rolling? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a loaded question in terms of I'm, I'm not, you know, part of the LGBTQ plus community. Uh, so I, I don't understand the struggles that, that that community has gone through. And, and I don't want to downplay those struggles. But uh, going from such a devout Christian upbringing to then being pretty much agnostic and and even now I struggle with you know I'm I'm very firm in my faith and and my understanding and even then I I don't agree with a, a lot of what mainstream um mainstream Christian doctrine teaches and and I have these debates with my father a lot and it causes a lot of animosity and so for that kind of conversations to be had one second let me let me think this through I would say that honestly it's it's just understanding your own relationship with I want to say this in a way that's still true to myself so I'm going to give it from my own personal perspective and and you can fill whatever noun you want with with whatever uh, but I'm going to use God and, and so for me I realized that for my beliefs with, with Christ and I had walked away from Christianity. I was like, this is dumb. It doesn't make sense. I don't, I don't understand it and it can't be proven. But then as I actually kind of let the emotions subside uh, as months went by and I was able to go in and actually do my own research uh, without the, all the, the stuff that had been planted in my head and I actually did my own research. I, I, I found something that was really, really hard to refute. And, and I didn't like that outcome. I, I didn't. I, I didn't want there to be this deity that I was responsible to. And, and that means that, you know, I, I'm not now just responsible to my own versions of rules that are in my, my own life. And I was, I was like curious as to why that is and why, why do we have this deity and why did it become a thing? And and what came down to is, is that I kept hearing people talking about, uh, you know, God is in us, like we are our own gods. And I was like, I, that's not, for me, that's not true. But as I looked into the Bible and I started reading about, you know, how, like what God really is, who God really is, I realized that they even talk about the Holy Spirit being one of the tandems of God and that the Holy Spirit is in us. And so our own consciousness and our own conscientious conscientiousness is a reflection of that Holy Spirit that, and so it like, it made sense. And so that it kind of clicked. And I was like, well, if God is real to me and, and he is, or it is whatever God, you know, form he takes, he takes it, it just, it was very clear that my relationship with God is my relationship with God and how I read the Bible might be completely different than how someone else reads the Bible. And that's so evident with all the different churches there are. Like you look at Christianity and there's a million ways that, that Christians interpret the Bible. And at the end of the day, we could go up and God could be like, um, all of you, but that one were wrong. So it's like, if that's the case, why am I sacrificing my life and my friendships to fit this version of Christianity that one group of people told me I had to act like whenever there were people in the exact same circle that were different. And so I was like, okay, if I realize that God is his own being, I can't make up my interpretation of God. I can't. So I just need to read and, and, and figure that out for myself. 
And so that helped me go into those conversations with my father and, and saying like, look, like I understand where you're coming from and I get why you teach what you teach and how you've been taught, but realize I'm not the 13, 14 year old boy sitting in the pew listening to you preach anymore. I've gone through a lot of life experiences and I've, I mean, I was that kid that read Marcus Aurelius for fun. Like I, 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 I've read Jordan Peterson's 12 rules for life like four times just because I am, I love the philosophy of it. So it's like when you have that deep understanding of not understanding anything, then it, it makes you be able to go into those conversations and be like, look, this is what philosophy says. This is what science this is what neurology and neuroscience says. And this is what it says in the Bible. And honestly, it makes a lot of sense where they connect, but it's just a little bit different than what we've been taught. And so going into those conversations and just giving my life experience, being vulnerable from the start with them about my life experience. And, and I let them know too, I was like, I, I, I get what you're saying, but you have not experienced what I went through. Um, you have not been overseas. You have not seen a, you know, you haven't walked the streets of West Africa and seen kids with, with missing limbs carrying AK-47s to protect their family. Like you haven't seen these things. So you can't dis discredit what I'm going to say. And I'm blessed to have a father who's very, very patient too. So he can, he can disagree and we can say we just agree to disagree and still hug each other and love each other afterwards. Uh, and so I understand that that's not the case with a lot of people. They don't have the family that wants to try and understand. Um, so with that, it's, it's just going into a conversation with, with empathy understanding that like say if if you know you're queer and you're coming out to your parents and they just don't get it realize that their life experience has pushed so much against what it is that you're doing but we're blessed to grow up and I and I'm not speaking on behalf of the community but we are blessed to grow up in a place where we can have these conversations there's whole communities of people who are supporting each other in this and and helping each other through this and our parents didn't have that my dad was a a um, artist and he has like two degrees just in art and he grew up in a very very old-fashioned like American dream family with four brothers, all of them athletic stars. And like, so my dad and, and pardon my French, my dad was literally called a faggot and beat up every day. And, and that's how he grew up. He grew up being told he was gay. He grew up being told that he was this bad person. He was, he was an outsider. He was an outcast. And some of his best friends in, in the art community are, are a part of that, you know, LGBTQ plus community. So he's very empathetic to, to that whole scenario. But it's like you have to realize that their life experience had so much hate towards this community just because they were different. And it didn't even have to be LGBT. Like my dad was just an artist. And he was just thrown like that because he didn't fit the mold of what the stereotypical good American looked like. And so whenever we're talking to our parents about these hard concepts, we have to realize that they lived in a completely different world than us. We can't even remember what really our world was like before 2010 uh, or, or 2006 when the internet really blew up. Like we, we don't, we can't comprehend, we can generalize what our past was like, but so now to, to try and understand our parents or our grandparents and how they were grew up, like it's, we can't, we just, we can't, we have to understand that we cannot live their shoes. So they are going to be very strong about what they believe. And it just takes a lot of empathy and a lot of compassion and coming back and showing that you still love them no matter what. And I promise you those walls will break. I promise you those walls will break. Because the human condition that you can rewire your brain, you can, it's possible, but it takes time. And what it takes at that point is having someone in that community being you going and talking and loving your parents every day for it to change a view of a group of people that they really don't know anyone in that community personally. And so for me, I didn't know a lot of people personally in that community. So I was like, I was, I was very quick to just kind of throw it into this comedic relief, you know, of, of using slurs. And, and then I started, you know, actually having a lot of friends within that community. And then I moved to California and in the Marine Corps. And 
uh, start up my training company in which like half of my clients were a part of that community. And just seeing such nice, amazing people that just loved being people and, and being, and so it was like, how can I not love people? Especially when, I mean, Jesus was best friends with prostitutes and drunkards and all the, the, the religious leaders, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the ones who actually made the rules that implemented the rules of the church. Jesus was like, those guys aren't cool. Like, no, I don't want to do, I don't want to be. And so we have this upbringing that, that focuses so much on the rules and the, 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 you know, you have to be this way. You have to act this way. You have to give this much. You have to do this. And then, but they're all teaching from a guy who was literally like, ah, screw all that. Like be different, be unique, be you love everybody. And so I'm like, I'm going to do what, what he said in the, in the root of the word of just love people. And, and so, yeah, just a long-winded answer to your question. Uh, <laughs> sorry, I'm rambling. I just, no, I get I so passionate. It. I get so passionate about this because it's, we all deserve a good life experience uh, while we're here. And I believe that I get to go somewhere amazing after this. And I, and I pray and hope that, you know, as many people come with me, but at the end of the day, some people aren't. That doesn't mean that they have to have a bad life experience. That doesn't mean I have to wish on them death and destruction their whole life. No, I want them to live a happy and amazing and full life. Uh, so just go into the world and, and meet people with empathy and compassion and understand like you can still be your true authentic self without showing 100% all the time because our true authentic selves can be too much for people who don't genuinely know us. And, and I think that's another huge lesson that should be put out too, is that it's great to be vulnerable and authentic, but understand that sometimes we can be a little too much for people who haven't been trained to understand the way our emotions work. So be empathetic, be patient, be kind, be loving, and uh, just consistent. Oh my God. And please, by the way, I love your passion rants. Never apologize for that. Like, I feel like just tailoring off what you just said at the very end there, I have right beside my bed. It's actually a gift from a friend of mine, which I'm so grateful for, is a handwritten picture of a Glennon Doyle quote that you will be too much for some people. Those are not your people. <laughs> and when you apologize for ranting, I want you to know that like, I am your people when it comes to passion rants. I am very verbose. I have like, oh man, yeah, like this is wonderful. Please rant about everything. And that was so beautiful. And there's so much in there that I think is valuable for so much of the world to listen to. Um, and I, I completely agree with everything you're saying, again, as someone who is a human, just like you, and someone with some very different identifying qualities. And it's beautiful how we can come to the same table and be like, yes, yeah, we have to, we have a responsibility as humans to show up with empathy and care and compassion. And like, I, I call it a temporary divorce. Like I temporarily divorced my parents a couple of years ago and it wasn't from a place of hatred. It wasn't from a place of malice. It was literally from this space of I'm recognizing that I am individualizing to the point where you are not currently my people. I want you to be, but while I take myself out of that, like angry, ragey, like older teenager headspace, I've got to take care of myself and I can't talk to you in a way that's calm and compassionate. I don't have those skills right now. So I have a responsibility to take space from you while I sort out my feelings. So I'm able to come back to the table and us have this conversation safely and, and with care and just like mutual hearing and listening and love. Um, and everything that you said reminded me so much of, I feel like most people have heard this now, hurt people, hurt people, or like heal people, heal, heal people. And equally in the same breath, a mantra I will go to my deathbed on is your trauma is not your fault, but it is your responsibility to heal and be aware of. The things that happen to us that are that are harmful and tragic are are brutal and painful. And I think you and I are on the same page where we as humans will never invalidate anyone else's experience. That is your truth. That is your life. That is what you have experienced. If you say you're hurting, I believe you. Absolutely. And in the same breath, just because you are hurting, that does not give you a right to turn around and flip that hurt onto the next person you come across who triggers you. 
And I feel like so much of our community lives in that space of the, I've been hurt and now this hurt has to go somewhere and be projected out at others. And rather than doing that, I wonder how we can start. And I think the world is slowly getting there, but I wonder what more concrete steps can be made for us as people to show up and go, just because I've been hurt, that doesn't give me a right to hurt other people. And how do I heal myself? And what do I do with this experience that I've had? How do I work through this? What support systems do I have? Who is my chosen family? Like, how do I sit in these feelings and feel cared for and find safety again so that I can move forward without um, that trauma being projected at others? Because ultimately that's what our parents did. That's what people in those lives did. They just didn't know. They had no idea what they didn't know. They were raised in environments where my parents, for instance, my dad was raised in communist Hungary. My mom was raised in a military British household. And it was very like English, stiff upper lip, rub some dirt in it. What are emotions? We don't feel them. Get on with it. Move along. And my dad was raised with a like, anger is the only acceptable emotion. Everything else is weakness. And so what were they supposed to teach me? They didn't know any better. And I'm so grateful that I have parents who like that was their upbringing. And I have successfully taken space away, worked on myself, and now have the best relationship with my parents I've ever had because they were patient and caring and compassionate and wanted a relationship with me. I was patient and caring and compassionate and wanted a relationship with them. And we showed back up to go, there's been hurt here, a lot of hurt. What do we need to do to hear each other? And what do we need to do to take care of each other as people that want a relationship? Because that's like, I, I feel like this could potentially sound so hokey to people who don't get it, but I'm like, I'm serious. If you show up and just give other people the benefit of the doubt and say, even when you say things that are hurting me, you're not trying to hurt me. Something you're saying is hurting my own feelings. And it's my job to articulate that back to you and us to have this compassionate conversation and resolve the problem at hand. Um, my, I feel like my head just exploded. I ran out of words, but that's what I have right now. What, tell me more thoughts you have on this and how do we create the society where more people think this way? Marcus Aurelius said something along, along the lines of, uh, my pain is my choice. Uh, like you can hurt me, obviously you can break my, you can break my bones. You can, you can, you can, you know, tear me apart. But at the end of the day, the actions that you did, whether it's words, whether it's, it's actual actions or stabbing me in the back, whatever it was, it's my choice. Consciously, I have to decide to be mad. And it might be something that's a really fast emotional trigger but it's still something that happens on my end. They're not in my head moving things around. So at that point, I have to understand and back away and, and breathe and, and see why am I mad? And there's something my dad used to tell me that used to just piss me off and I would get so mad. And you know, I had this mentality of like, my life experience has been way worse than anyone else's. And I think a lot of us get stuck in this where it's like, I, you know, and for me specifically, I'm like, what? you know, 12 year old kid, 13 year old kid wakes up on his birthday to his brother dead. What, what, you know, what guy, you know, goes and, and sees the things that he sees and experiences the loss that he experiences through his life. No one, no one's been through that. I'm, I'm unique and my pain hurts and no one else's pain matters. And I got stuck in that mentality and it was such a lonely, lonely place to be, but we get addicted to being alone because it means we're different, you know, and, and, it's, it's just this funny thing because we live in a society that calls us to be different, but at the core of who we are as humans, we want connection. And it's a conflict that was created by, by technology. Because if you look at before technology, everyone wanted to just be close and, and they wanted connection. And, and so that went away as we started uh, giving more incentives of being different and being uh, better at certain crafts and skills. And as you know, I, I, I love the system of capitalism, you know, but at the same time, the way technology has turned it is, is a lot different than what it was meant to be. And I think uh, the capitalism that was born back in, in the 1700s was something beautiful. And, and then through the years, we've, we've turned it into kind of a monster that's 
based off of how you look, where you are, where you've been, and 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 uh, how can you show your life experience is different than everyone else's. And we've gotten in this mode where we just get addicted to feeling sad and lonely. And all we want is human connection, but it's it's uncomfortable because you're afraid that it's going to, a lot of us tell us, well, what if they leave us and, and it hurts? Okay, but you're already alone. So are you really scared of losing them or are you scared of changing the feeling of consistently being alone? Because at least it's a consistent emotion. It's a consistent feeling. As soon as you let happiness in, you know how now have a change in those in those emotions. Your brain is now working and wiring different things, and it takes being uncomfortable. Being happy is uncomfortable if you're always depressed. That's part of depression. And so whenever you start getting this, this happy, it almost feels manic, and you don't know how to respond to it. So we sabotage ourselves, and we, we, we continue to be alone. And then through that sabotage, we say, well, they left us and it hurts. So now I'm just going to be alone. When in reality, we probably did something or a lot of little things that led to them leaving or us even kicking them out and then saying they left. And in, in reality, it was nothing to do with them. It was the fact that we just love being lonely. And so my dad used to say, and it pissed me off, was that, you know, we, I would be driving, I would maybe experience road rage or something, or I would just be, I don't get why I can't catch a break like this person's doing great and it's just handed to them. And my dad's like, are you sure it was handed to them? I'm like, well, maybe not, but they haven't had the experience I had. And I was like, well, yeah, I mean, you definitely had an experience, but they haven't, you know, their, their, their consciousness doesn't perceive your same wavelength of bad and good. Like it's, it's their graph might be the exact same. Their brain's response to pain might be the exact same. And though your pain tolerance might be, you can take a, a knife to the leg and their pain tolerance might be a tattoo is too much. Realize it's still the same that their brain is telling them all these things. And I was like, oh, shut up. But then I sat down and I was like, he's right. He's exactly right. You know, for me, I might be able to get stabbed in the leg and feel fine. And someone else, they get a paper cut and they cry. But the brain is telling them the exact same amount of pain as it's telling me. And physical pain and emotional pain are so similar. And science is telling us that more and more every day. If you look at physical stress from a deadlift and then emotional stress from a failed test, it's almost the exact same in the brain, the, re the responses. And so as soon as that happened and I realized like, okay, for me, losing a friend or, or holding a Marine while, while he died to someone else losing their job, though they're very different. And I can think like, I would rather lose my job than lose a friend's life any day. For them, that was so traumatic. And yeah, they didn't lose a friend, but they weren't even in that situation. So for me to compare that is, is not fair to them. They experienced something horrible and tragic, and now they're trying to, to reconstruct their life around that. So whenever I go a, about uh, conversing with other people and, and understanding that I had to check myself. I had to tell myself like, yes, what I went through was bad. And I'm, I'm allowed to feel that, but I'm not allowed to hold a grudge against other people who aren't me. Cause that's only going to keep me lonely and unhappy. And if I can just get through the uncomfortable portion, like smoke, like quitting smoking, you have to get through that period where you're just craving what you had before because your body has made its own version of homeostasis. If I can just pull myself out of that, allow myself to love and be loved, then eventually it won't feel weird. And I just have to keep doing it. I have to show up for myself. I have to be consistent with myself and love myself enough to not move backwards. And so I did that. And it was really uncomfortable and it took a lot of, of mess ups, a lot of, a lot of hiccups, a lot of heartbreaks, a lot of um, friends lost and a lot of friends gained. And then a lot of, of new opportunities showed up and a lot of new friends showed up and a lot of, of self-love showed up and a lot of self-talk, positive self-talk showed up. And it was like, you could see, tangibly see, looking back at even just the content I've made and the blogs that I've written and the articles I've done and the, the teams I've joined and the teams I've created, you can see the shift. And I'm a, I'm a very, I'm, I'm a researcher by heart. 
And that's part of the reason why I'd walked away from my faith before. And it's part of the reason why I love and hate the fitness industry so much. And um, it's, it, it, I love data. So looking back at, at all of that and seeing the actual data of my manifestation of being the best version of myself, I realized like, okay, I can't argue the data. It's working. It works. I can't argue it. And so, you know, and, and that just came down to, to it. Like I have to quit being unique in my pain and instead be unique in my strengths. And it was that shift during that whole journey of self-actualization and, and understanding and really finding my way back to my faith too. And that was a huge part of it um, that, that it, I, I can't even really put words to, to how powerful that uh, journey is. Oh my God, I'm, I'm stimming. Um, I'm so excited. I, you just put into words so much that I feel. And also as a researcher, I just had a nerd out over here. Side note, as being the researcher that I am, I am a qualitative researcher. That is my background. I collect stories. I collect humans' experiences and store them in my brain and create patterns to share with the world. And so you saying that, I'm like, yes, like I feel the same way about my experience. And I'm curious for you because I have friends who are like, I'm on my self-growth journey. I'm on my self-actualization journey. Everyone, it, it starts differently for everyone, but this is a question I've been, it's been keeping me up at night. Is this a lifelong gradual building of one day? Some people might realize they're in it when they're 50, when they're 20, when they're 27 on their deathbed, or are there moments that create these like, triggers in our brain that that cue us almost like a synapse to be like ah action potential has been achieved we are like <laughs> we are in this moment of realization like what are your thoughts on that are there moments that create these self-reflection periods or is it just living life creates self-actualization i i genuinely I, this is a great question alex this is this is an amazing question that i would love to unpack and so I think I've seen and I've had the, the blessing to to really understand observation and data analysis. Uh, and so just observing the people that I'm around all the time and, and the people that I'm in contact with and seeing their lives, you know, play out. And the ones who don't pay attention to the to the, the massive signs, the one that just let life go and they go through that growth, you know, um, a lot of those are the people that just never grow up. And I don't mean that in an innocent sense of like, they keep their childish wonder. I mean that in the most immature sense of they just, they, they aren't creating a better life experience for those around them. And it's not quite their fault either. It's, it's, you look at some people and you're like, I wish they could just see themselves, but the truth is they can't, and they don't have the people around them to show them who they are. And so that's, that's fine. That's their life. It is what it is. But there are people, and I think like myself included, and I, and I believe probably you too, where these life events happen, and it might not be something that makes you 180, but they're turn signals, they're road signs, and you start to actually pay attention to these road signs, and you start thinking like, okay, my gut is telling me to go this way, I need to go this way, and for me, it's like, okay, my gut's telling me to go this way, I need to pray on it, I need to meditate, I need to see and one of honestly the best business books and relationship books that I have is, is the Bible. And uh, it used to be something that I didn't read a whole lot of, but it was just sit on my shelf. And then I remember listening to a interview with um, George Mumford. He was the uh, performance coach for Shaquille O'Neal and Kobe and, and Michael. And uh, he, he said like the best book I can, I can recommend is, is the Bible because of the lessons in it. And so I started reading that while going through my tribulations and and whenever i would start to see that road sign i would pray and i would meditate and then i would i would read and, and see okay what's something that's similar in this situation but there was one specific instance that i think really hit the nail on the head for me and i was again it was it was a lot of this like i was just addicted to being lonely and, and i i didn't want to pull away from that kind of thing and i was like so judgmental on on everyone else and I remember reading a parable and uh, it talked about, you know, this, 
the, the prodigal son, which I'm, I'm sure you've heard of before. And, and I think this is something that a lot of people read wrong. And, and so when you, when Jesus told the prodigal son, uh, the prodigal son was this, you know, essentially this party kid, he lived this lavish life. His dad was really rich, owned a lot of land. And uh, he <clears throat> asked for his inheritance early, which to do that for your dad back then is literally like saying, I wish you were dead. And I just want to move on with my life and be away from you, which is something that I think a lot of, you know, people our age can, can relate to of like, I wish you were just dead. Only problem is he was really rich. So he didn't just wish his dad was dead. He wished his dad was dead and would give him all his money. So what does his dad do? His dad says, okay, here's your inheritance. Like, I, I don't want to hold you back. I don't want to keep you where you don't want to be. Here's your inheritance. And so the kid runs off, spends his inheritance, blows it all, ends up living in a pigsty, eating the crumb from the pigs, because uh, it, it just life of addictions and afflictions, and it just left him rotting, you know, and, and so he was eating pig slop and he's like, I just, I need to go back home and ask my dad for a job. Maybe my dad will be gracious enough just to give me a job and let me sleep in the servants quarters. So he came back and the dad sprints down the road. He sees his son miles away and just sprints and embraces his, his son and holds him. And he hosts the biggest party and has the best calf slaughtered. And uh, which is something that back then is like the equivalent of, 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 getting the best chefs to make the best food like it's he spent a lot of money on this party and everything and so a lot of people think like oh that's great no matter what you do you can always come back and and people love you but yes that's part but the other part was there was this other son the brother the prodigal son brother who complained to his dad that his that the prodigal son shouldn't have been allowed back why are you, why are you doing all this for him? I'm the one that's been here doing the work. I'm the, I'm the one that's been working so hard for you and, and proving you right and, and making you proud of me. Aren't you proud of me? Why, why aren't I? And, and the father's like, hold on, this is your brother. Like, be happy. He's back. Love him. Give him empathy, compassion, love. And he's like, no, why, why would I do this? And he left. And so what that for me represented was no matter what someone does in their life, we have an obligation to love them because if we're the brother and we hate them because they, they somehow had a, an easier life experience than us. And now I'm holding this grudge on them. Well, guess what happened to that brother? He got cast out of the party. And as the parable relates to Christianity, that brother who was the good one doing all the, all the right things and obeying all the rules and doing all this stuff, he didn't get into heaven. And it wasn't that he was, it, it, it's, he made his faith a list of rules and it wasn't just love. And so for me in life, I realized that was a huge turning point for me is I had to quit being the brother that was comparing me, my life journey to everyone else's and getting mad whenever they were getting special treatment for something that seemed easier. And I was like, and if that brother could see what this brother went through of eating pig slop and starving to the point where he was about to die and just hoping that he could even just come back and live in the servant quarters, then this brother probably would have been a little bit more empathetic, but he didn't care. He didn't care at all. He left and then he got cast out. And so for me, it's like, I don't want to get cast out because of my lack of empathy and love for the human race. And so, so for me, it's, it's, just loving people and casting aside my own life experience because that's just mine. It's mine. I, and I can share with people and if they can em empathize with it or relate to it, then that's amazing. But I don't share it to be unique or to be different. I share it just so maybe someone can connect, but at the same time, I don't hold it to any esteem anymore. I used to, but not anymore. It's life is an even playing field for all of us. And, uh, I think that's why I've been so attracted to, to talking with you is that uh, you have, a, you have an, an innate way to understanding the human experience with all of its differences, but understanding the main similarity. We are, we're all human. And uh, yeah, that's, that's how I would just kind of formulate all of that. Uh, again, another long rant, but I'm not sorry about it. And uh, I, I just, I think it's, it's really awesome to be in a position where we can actually start talking about being a good person and it not be castracized because for some reason, like, we're like, oh, just be a good person. No, that's weak. In business, that's weak. 
be a good person. Well, in life, that means you have to be weak. Like you, you need to be a yes man and say yes to everybody. And it's like, no, no, that's not it. There's, there's so many things of being a good person that don't require you to sacrifice who you are. And it doesn't require you to sacrifice who other people are. Just be you, take care of yourself, and then you can take care of other people. Oh my God, completely. And thank you. Oh my God. Thank you for passion rant. I'm going to be listening to this over and over again, by the way, I feel very humbled talking to you and equally what you're bringing up for me within myself is a reflection on my own experiences and, um, some personal struggles of mine that like I have had to work through in the same breath of like being that second son that has looked at other people and been like, like shot of Freud almost of being like, I wish, like, I don't wish them, like, I don't wish them poor. I just, it did, but is that voice in your head? It's that voice of like, I deserve that. How did they get that? Like, I want better. And when I've, I've been through a few situations in my life where like hard things have happened and my coping mechanism following up on that was like to sit in the pain and sit in the funk and be like, I deserve this pain. This pain makes me special. This pain makes me like, it was my coping mechanism. Um, but in the same breath, I absolutely have had those thoughts. I still have those thoughts sometimes of being like, how did that person get this? They don't deserve it. Or I, and not even they don't deserve it, but I deserve it. Why don't I have that? Why aren't I like that? And it, it, we have to be aware of those thoughts inside our brain and bring ourselves out of them. And something that changed my world, it flipped my head upside down because I very similarly was always like, I'm a good person. I spend my whole life loving and caring for other people. Like, why do I think the way I do? Why don't these things happen to me? And someone, it was actually my best friend's mother once said to me at dinner, I, in therapy, learned that I am a, I'm working, working through this, but have coping mechanisms that include people pleasing, perfectionism. I was the yes person. Like the yes person was my identity because I knew that being a good person was important. So I was like, I know how to, I know how to solve this riddle. I am going to be the best person who only ever takes care of everyone else. And that didn't solve the problem. Quite the opposite. It harbored all this resentment inside of me and all of this anger and bitterness that had nowhere to go because I didn't know why I felt that way because I was, I was shaming myself for feeling resentful for taking care of other people's needs and my, not my own. And my best friend's mother over dinner one night was trying to help me with something. I can't remember what it was. I kept offering her help. And she was like, yeah, I'd love your help. No problem. Great. She offered me help. And I was like, oh no, I'm, I'm good. Don't worry. I'm, I'm, I'm great. No problem. And she deadpan looked at me across the table and said, do you get joy from helping other people? And I said, yeah, I love, I love helping other people. And she was like, so why would you be so selfish to not let someone else have that same joy and help you? And it ruined my life <laughs> and changed my life in the best possible way. Because I think there will be people who listen to this who are like me and, and a past version of myself who go, I'm the good person. And this is so validating because they're like, well, I'm doing all the good things and I'm caring for other people and I care and I'm good and I'm empathetic. And empathy without boundaries and empathy without self-love is not empathy. And it's love to other people, but it's also love to ourselves. And love to ourselves also means asking for help and also means accepting the graciousness from others, accepting other people to love and care for you. Because when you're just giving it out, you may think you're doing the love and caring thing, but you're actually controlling those people's perspectives of you and you're not taking care of yourself at all. And now you're the angry second son. And so it's this balance of love others and love yourself for where you're at and what you're experiencing, whatever that experience might be. Um, oh my God, Isaac, thank you for this. What, yeah, do you have any- I have something to add to that that I think is, is really awesome. And it's self-love and, and self-care are so important. And as service-oriented people, we tend to, to put it on the back burner and think that it's just selfish or it's not who we are. I'm not that person. I'm not that person that just does stuff for myself. That's not who I am. And I challenge people to change that thinking because it is who we are. We, we, we are wired for self-preservation. So to say that we don't want self-care is to literally lie to like deny biology. You're denying 
your own biology to say, and your own neuroscience that says like self-preservation is important. You need to take care of yourself. It looks different now than it did back in, you know, 2000, 3000 years ago, but it's still the, the same principle. We need to take care of ourselves. And I had this argument with my, well, I wouldn't say argument. Uh, I had this talk with my dad and he's, he's a very service being a pastor for, you know, 40 years. I mean, he's just driven to just service. Uh, but at the same time, I've seen this decay of life and to the point where he's just exhausted. His hormones are a mess. He feels sick often. He, he doesn't know why he feels the way he feels. And I'm like, when was the last time you did something for you? And he's like, well, and it, the idea made him almost mad. Like he was defensive. He's like, I can't do that. He kept arguing. And I was like, dad, why? Why won't you take some, like, why won't you just say no? Anytime the phone rings, which it rings a lot for his phone, he's every time answers it. And if someone asks him for something immediately, yes, I'm on my way. And it'll disrupt everything he does. His entire workday for his actual, you know, nine to five job will completely, it's gone. Like, he, it, sorry, I'm, I'm leaving, you know, and, and he'll throw everything to the side to, to serve anybody who asks him. It's like, dad, do you do you truly believe in the teachings of, of Christ? And, you know, and he said, well, obviously, yeah. I was like, well, even Jesus told the 12 disciples to leave him alone sometimes so he could go think and meditate and, and, and calm himself and, and, you know, fix his own inner, inner problems. He was still a man. And I was like, dad, if, if the person that you get all of your teachings from preaches self-preservation and, and that time alone, why aren't you taking it? And he got quiet. And I could tell he was, he was really conflicted and, and he sat there and his eyes were just kind of fluttering around and he started to get that kind of frown on his face. And then he kind of chuckled a little bit and then got back to the frown on his face. And he said, you're right. You're right. You're completely right. I was like, dad, you cannot fill everyone's cup without refilling your own. And if you do, then you will drown or you will, you will die of, of thirst and then never be able to fill another cup again. So understand that life is great. Service is great until you can't serve anymore. And it's not your choice. And it's so, so for me, it's understanding if I love serving others, if I love bringing a positive impact on someone's life experience, I cannot continue to do that. If I do not take care of my own. If I do not cultivate love and respect for myself, I will not continuously be able to love and respect other people. And it sounds counterintuitive, but it's true. And I heard this, this podcast and it was, um, it was a UFC fighter. It was actually one of the podcasts that uh, um, Matthew from TRM gave us uh, from the Peak Mindset. And he, he asked this, uh, I forget the name, it was a fighter. And he asked him, you know, what is what is your top two values? And he said, the first one is integrity. The second one is family. And he's like, I'll tell you why the second one is family. And he says, he's like, a lot of people think this is selfish when they ask me. And I tell him my first one is inner integrity and then family. And he's like, but being in integrous and having good integrity means that I am the man that I need to be. And that I'm showing up when I'm supposed to show up for my wife, for my kids, but if I'm not doing that work on myself first, then family will never happen. And that is like, it's so, so true for me to be the best dad I can be for my daughter, for me to be the best boyfriend I can be for my, for, for my girlfriend, Peyton, for me to be the best friend I can be, for me to be the best coach, the best mentor, the best leader. It takes understanding and having that time to work on myself. Oh. Isaac, thank you so much for sharing that. I, I think just the absolute world of you, I think you're an amazing, amazing human who is and will continue to serve others and spread so much joy and light, but also just has the most beautiful messages and 
the way you speak and the way you share stories, by the way, is captivating in like such a genuine, beautiful way that I don't experience very often. I'm like sucked into everything you're saying. And I'm like, tell me a bedtime story. Like I like in a weird way, but whatever. It, I, I just think you are a remarkable, remarkable human. So thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to have this empowering conversation with me. I'm so grateful for it. Um, I would love for you to share for anyone listening to this, if they want to reach out to you, connect with you and learn more about what you do, where can they find you? Yeah, I'm on uh, Instagram as the prolific professor. Um, my company is called Prolific PT. Uh, and, and we're just a, a team of coaches that specialize in you. Uh, the, the one problem I saw in the fitness industry is that uh, I saw a bunch of coaches working with anybody they could, and everyone just kind of became one of the numbers. And uh, they lost their experience, their human experience got lost in translation. And so I wanted to build a, a company where we didn't have a head coach and other coaches underneath. We had a specific coach that specialized in a niche and they owned that niche, you know? So if you're just a woman wanting to lose some weight, we have a lifestyle coach, you know, if, if you want to do a contest prep, you know, I, I handle the contest prep for bodybuilders. If you want to build strength or do a powerlifting, we have a strength and powerlifting coach, you know, like we have a, a virtual coach who does at home virtual zoom workouts. Like we have very specific coaches for specific uh, niches, but uh, I'm on Instagram as the prolific professor. And uh, from there, you can get links to everything else. But yeah, that's that's how you would best get a hold of me or email prolificptf at gmail.com with any questions. Amazing. Isaac, thank you so, so much. I, my heart is so full right now. And thank you again for this beautiful conversation. I'm so grateful. Thank you. I'm just honored to be here. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to listen to this episode. I so appreciate it. And if you have more topics you would like to hear about or want to learn more, you can find us at abhmovement.com, abhmovement on Instagram and TikTok and Facebook, or hit us up in our Empath Movement Facebook group. Have an amazing day today and thank you so much again.